paying off debt turns out to be a personal quarrel with the mind and our behaviors. How can you improve your mindset to paying off your debt? This episode derails all those excuses. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Newman, and welcome back to the show. Super excited you guys are here. To help us create perspective around mindset and debt is my good friend, Dr. Corey Fawcett, who you might remember being on the show last year where we discussed how to eliminate half a million dollars of debt as a physician. You might also remember that he's written a few books, excellent books, on debt, business, retirement, all geared towards physicians. He's pretty open about his goal of helping healthcare professionals live healthy, happy, and debt-free lives by teaching them personal finance techniques, and I love what he's doing. So having him on the show is a true pleasure because he's just full of great insight. For this episode, we touch on the psychology of deciding to pay down debt. And according to Dr. Fawcett, this is the first step that will lead to financial freedom. And in detail, he explains the snowball method of paying off debt. Make sure you stick around to the end to hear my shout out for all of you who are interested in getting a free financial health assessment on air. All right, I'm excited to share this one. Let's jump right in and talk with Dr. Corey Fawcett. Dr. Fawcett, so excited to have you back on the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to talk to you again. Oh, it's always fun. And we got to meet up at FinCon and hang out for a little bit. And we said, hey, we got to get together and do this again. So happy we made time and that you are back here on the show. I really want to dive into talking about debt. I want to start off with the My psychology. Subject, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've written a whole <laughs> book on it, right? And we talked about that last time you were here. So, you know, obviously, if you haven't listened, go back, listen to the show that Dr. Fawcett and I did and discussing a lot of actually the principles in his book. I want to talk this time more around the psychology around debt and deciding to pay down the debt. I have read something recently you had written, and I think this is a perfect gateway to start the conversation. So I'm going to quote one of your articles, and you said, the biggest effect is not the amount of money that you need to add to the snowball in this case, but it was the decision to start the snowball in the first place. Yeah. That's something I've discovered just recently because I've been always working with this snowball idea with the notion of the more money that you can put into the snowball and the faster it goes, you know, the, the better off you'll be. And where people were always playing with the should I invest or should I pay off debt question, I was playing with that when one of my one-on-one clients said, I'm just not sure I'm ever going to be able to pay off this debt. Mm-hmm. They were one and a quarter million dollars in the hole. And so I ran through some scenarios with them. And the thing that jumped out at me was if they took the snowball method, and I'm sure most people are familiar with the snowball method, but it's to take your smallest debt and concentrate on paying that one off first. And then when it's paid off, you take that payment and move it to the next debt. And you just keep doing this. And it's like a snowball. The payment keeps getting bigger. When I looked at their debt, I gave them several scenarios and in the article I listed out how much they would need to put in to make their debt go away a year faster. And I started looking at that and realized that the biggest chunk happened just by deciding to do this. For example, I don't have the actual number for that one of they didn't do anything at all, but I took another client recently. I was looking at the difference between the snowball and the avalanche and they had three quarters of a million dollars of debt. And just their home mortgage alone, if they paid it off in 30 years, just their home mortgage, it was going to be $316,000 of interest. Mm -hmm. And that's their 30-year loan. But most people don't do it in 30. They keep refinancing and it keeps, it's 35 and then 40. And it's it's really never. When you do that, you really go to never as when will you be debt-free. But if that person just started the snowball, didn't add any extra money to it, just started the snowball, they're debt-free in 10 years and only $178,000 in interest. You cut the interest in half, you cut the time down by about 70%, just by saying, 
I'm not borrowing any more money. I'm going to pay off what I've got. I think that's the biggest thing right there. I'm not borrowing any more money. I'm not borrowing any more money. When I looked at the other client that had one and a quarter million dollars in debt, if they just let the snowball take its time and don't add any money, because everybody's always talking about all this scrimping and saving you need to do to pay off your debt, they're already making those debt payments. Okay. They're doing that now. Yeah. I they're mean, you have, to, you have to have the minimums, right? <laughs> or you're, yeah, you're, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. So you've got your minimums. They're already doing that. Yep. So if they don't add any other money into it, pretty soon, I mean, every one of those debts is set to be paid off. I mean, the home mortgage in 30 years, it's gone. Every debt you have has an end date to it. So if you stop borrowing money, they'll all just go away. And pretty soon you're, you're going to be debt-free automatically. You'll speed that up by every time one gets paid off, go ahead and roll that payment off. Don't just take that payment and spend it or go borrow some more money for another thing, which is what usually happens. You just pay off your car and then you go borrow money and buy another one. Well, yeah, because I just freed <laughs> up $500 in my budget. <laughs> like I can go afford this really cool TV and then I can go afford XYZ for yeah. my, you know, whatever my house or whatever it might be. So if you're not in the mode for getting out of debt, as soon as you pay off a debt, you realize, oh, I could borrow some more. And so you just never get there. But if you just start the snowball, don't put any extra money so that the first one that gets paid off begins to roll the snowball. These guys that they're one point one and a quarter million of debt that they thought would never, they would never get done. It would be gone in 11 and a half years. Mm -hmm. Which is, from, I mean, considerable amount of interest <laughs> that they're saving. From I mean, never six to 11 and a half in your, never and a half years. And then it would take 800 more dollars that they add per month to cut off another year and another thousand dollars had cut off another year and 1200 had cut off another year and 17 more hundred. So to go from never to 11 and a half years was merely the decision to do this. Mm -hmm. No extra money, just stop borrowing and let it go away. And it took $4,700 more per month to take it down to seven and a half years. So the extra 4,700 a month only bought you four years of getting out of debt sooner what a difference it was, though, from never to 11 and a half years compared to 11 and a half down to seven and a half. And it's kind of when I realized, well, wait a minute, if we would just change our psychology towards debt, it goes away. It's not that big a deal. And if you think about it that way, you eliminate the question, should I invest or pay down my debt? Because if you'll stop borrowing money, your debt will go away. Mm -hmm. You can just go ahead and invest and then let your debt go away and let it snowball down. And you can eliminate a lot of the headache, a lot of the worry in your life by just letting those payments you're already making continue to do their work. But the key is you got to change your habits. Yeah, it's a mind, that, sh mind shift, right, with this. That's a habit problem. It's not a math problem. It's not a money problem. It's a habit problem. You have the habit of buying stuff you can't afford by borrowing money to do it. Yeah. I mean, well, if you had the money to buy a car, you just write a check for it and you get the car. If you don't have the money, you got to beg for somebody to give you the money and borrow it so you've got a monthly payment. Or you plan ahead, right? And you say, hey, I need to buy a new car in a few years. Let me put X amount aside to go then go do that. But I think it also depends on, and I think you can really relate to this as a physician, like where you're at in your career. Like if you're a resident, I mean, it's survival. You're just trying to work through some of this stuff and understand what you're doing in that. But if you're 10 years out and still piling on new debt, I think that's a great mindset to kind of change around. I in mean, that. I did that myself. I started my practice with only, I don't know, about $6,000 left of debt. But a couple of years later, I was half a million in debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I soon remember. as they started paying me big bucks, I mean, that meant people would loan me big bucks. So I borrowed money and did stuff and oh, yeah. bought stuff and Banks and are tripping realized, over everyone to, to basically, <laughs> banks trip over physicians to give them more money. It's, it's because they become debt immune and they figure, you know what, you're good for it. You're used to having it. What's some more? I coined a phrase in my book on eliminating debt called debtabetic neuropathy. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get numb to debt over time because especially bad for physicians because we go through all that training where we just, we keep borrowing money, throw it on the debt pile and nothing happens. And then we borrow some more and we throw it on the debt pile and nothing happens. And it doesn't catch up for us for many years. And when it does, 
we are so used to just, oh, if you could borrow money, nothing happens. It's no big deal. You have, you become numb to the effects of debt. You have that debtabetic neuropathy. That's a real bad place to be because now debt's no big thing to you. That attitude means you'll never be out of debt. So the FIRE community, and we've talked with some guests previously on this this year, you know, they're obviously trying to hit financial independence and or retire early at some point, you know, in the near future and pounding out debt, savings rates, all this stuff is what they're discussing. I think it's a little bit different for physicians because you have a much higher take-home pay or your income is just much higher compared to the average person in the U.S., but they push a lot of this ultra-frugal lifestyle, I think, that it's, you need to eat ramen in order to to achieve financial independence. You need to eat ramen in order to pay down and, and squash all this debt. And one, most of them kind of freak out when they look at a physician's uh, debt load. And I know my average client's 283000 of student debt alone, not mortgages, nothing else. And that might actually give them, you know, cardiac arrest or something. But, you know, they push this ultra-frugal lifestyle. Is that something that you kind of go with? Or is this kind of your mindset changed a bit on that as you've kind of worked through this yourself? I don't like the ultra frugal lifestyle. Okay. And here's why. I think you ought to be enjoying your life. Okay. If you enjoy those things, fine. But if you feel like you're scrunching down, cutting back, trying to just get by to do this ultra frugal thing and you're not happy, What's the point? I mean, for you to scrimp and save and go too tight to where you're unhappy, your wife's not happy, the kids aren't happy, uh, you can never do anything, but gosh, I got retired at 35. To what? <laughs> you know, you, well, some of these um, some of these guys and gals, they're retiring at 33, 34, 35, and less than a million dollars because they spend $18,000 a year. And I'm, I'm going, oh boy, right? like wait for a um, down cycle. <laughs> So it's kind of like the same thing that people do with dieting. If you go on some fad diet that's like, I remember when I was younger, the grapefruit 45. All you ate was grapefruit. I mean, if you put your life like that and all you're going to eat is grapefruit, okay, yeah, you're going to lose some weight and you're going to do it for a little while. But you know, you're not likely to keep that up because it's not fun. My wife's listening to being like grapefruit diet, huh? I'm going to walk into the (laughs) thing and see this. I'm like, oh, no. But I think you need to strike a balance. You need to be you need to be somewhat frugal, but not ultra frugal, but you also can't be ultra spending. If you're ultra spending, you end up with a lot of debt, you end up as they say in the millionaire next door, big hat, no cattle. Mm-hmm. You know, you look good, you smell good, but you're broke. On the other hand, if you're so ultra frugal that all you're doing is saving money, isn't that what Scrooge did? And look what happened. You know, he realized near the end of his life, this was stupid. Why aren't I enjoying things around me? So I think it's best if we strike some sort of a balance in all of this and be reasonable. So when you're trying to lose weight, you go on the grapefruit 45 diet, yeah, you're going to lose a little bit of weight and then you're going to go off of it. But if you just learn to eat better and be a little more balanced in what you're doing and eat a little fewer calories, you'll lose weight and you can do that for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not big on the ultra frugal approach, mostly because I wouldn't be happy with that. I wouldn't either, um, honestly. I'm kind of a frugal guy. So for instance, my motorhome, I bought a brand new motorhome 17 years ago. So here I am still driving that motorhome. It's a nice motorhome. It does good. There's nothing particularly bad. The inside looks great. It's almost like it's brand new still. We took good care of it. But I've been saying for a while, boy, I'd like to get a new motorhome. But I'm not trying to get a new motorhome because there's something wrong with mine. It's just like, I want a new one. I want a new one. And you see <laughs> and a few ads to... and you're like, oh, shiny. <laughs> wow, look at that one. Or you drive by one. Look at that one over there. We, you know, look at that. Or you pull in and you park next to a brand new one and you got your old one. It makes your old one look old. You know, that new one is really, really flashy. But finding that, you know, the balance is I didn't buy a beat up old motorhome and uh, just kind of get by with bailing wire and keep it going. I bought a nice one and used it for a long period of time and got a lot of use out of it. And I think that's the nice balance. You don't need a new motorhome every two years. That's way off on one end. And you don't need a motorhome that's a piece of junk way off on the frugal end. 
there's some balance in the middle where you can be enjoying your life, but not excessively. I've had a lot of one-on-one clients that when you get to looking at their finances and I make them look, (laughs) that's the first thing. Let's look at your finances. And they're like half a million dollars in the hole, but they spend on vacations as if they were a multimillionaire. I mean, you can't do that sustainably. Mm -hmm. Unless you're inviting me and then we can go on some really cool vacation if you'd like. Yeah. If you're going to let me come with you, I might encourage (laughs) you to spend that money. Um, No conflicts of interest, right? (laughs) Yeah. But those things will come back and bite you if you keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can enjoy an occasional thing like that, but you can't do it all the time. And these people, for instance, were doing it all the time. And basically I said, you know, you're not even broke yet. You got half a million dollars to go before you get up to the guy at the soup kitchen who has a net worth of zero. I kind of had an epiphany about that once. Last fall, I was on my way to give a lecture for a society of doctors, and I drove by the line at the local mission where the homeless were getting ready to come in for the night. And there was a line of homeless people. And I realized as I came to the meeting, I looked at all the doctors out there, many of them young, that that homeless guy was worth more money than most of the doctors in that room. They got a long ways to go to get up to the guy at the soup kitchen who's worth zero. Mm -hmm. They've got a high income and they're spending it all and they're not accumulating any wealth. Now, you talked about the ultra frugal people. They might have a high income or a low income, but they're not spending any of it and they're just trying to save it all and be kind of like Scrooge was. So that in the end, they got this big pile of money or at least enough money so they don't have to work. But if you don't have to work, will you be living a lifestyle you enjoy during that period of your life? Or are you going to have a 40-year retirement of misery because you actually don't have the money to do the things you would like to do? Yeah, or the one I look at is you're, you're retired at 32, 35, whatever it might be. Do you plan on dying at 70? I'm a little confused. Like your money's not going to last forever unless you do it like a 3% withdrawal rate and, you know, hope that you can stomach some down markets because you're going to see several of them during your quote unquote retirement. So I don't know. I, I have a lot of kind of mini issues with some of that and the ones that actually like retire early, but the financial independence piece I'm all for. I think it's an awesome, awesome strategy. And, you know, it's just a mind shift or a mindset change that I think is good. I think the biggest thing that those guys need to think about is, If you hate your job so bad you want out of it that early, why don't you just find something you like to do that pays money? That's what I did. Enjoy stuff, you know? (laughs) That's what I did. I went from working with high net worth individuals and being in dreading every day and being excited for Fridays, which, you know, and we're recording this on a Friday evening. And like Fridays are every day to me now. Like it's any other day. I don't, every day I'm excited to do what I do. I love what I do. Find something that you like doing and not have to completely retire off of that. And I think that's what some of them do. They, you know, the fire, the retire early piece is the retiring from the crap job that they had into doing something more fun, which is good. I think that's, that's fine. But you know, that's good. You mentioned. I did uh, that. Yeah. I did it in my early fifties. You know, I, I had targeted my whole life to be able to be financially independent by age 50. And then if I wanted to, I could retire. And I hit that. I ended up not wanting to retire because I enjoyed being a surgeon. And I retired four years later. But once you're financially independent, options open up. You can do all kinds of things. You could work part-time. If you love the job, you can do it for you know a little less. You can let other people take the call that want the money. Some people give up shifts. Uh, you know, There's a lot of things you can do to make life nicer. Yeah, I think it really helped combat the burnout that a lot of physicians feel because they get trapped in this debt cycle and rat race and that whole makeup, it makes it very tough. So one of the yes. things that, that you'd mentioned was the Millionaire Next Door. And we had Sarah Falah on, who wrote The Next Millionaire Next Door with her dad. And uh, that show is called The Makeup of a Physician Millionaire and How to Become One. And in that, uh, which was one of my favorite podcasts that I've, I've done, and if you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to it. It was an awesome one. But in it, she referenced how doctors are income statement affluent and typically they're not balance sheet affluent. And I know that you're a physician and you like to nerd out on finance. So I thought, you know what? I can't wait to discuss. And I jotted it down. I said, when I have Dr. Fossa back on, we are going to dive into this a bit because I think it is something that 
stood out to me as like kind of shocking. Now I I know yes. this. I work with physicians all across the country. I see this time and time again, literally every day. But it's still shocking that on that massive of a scale, through all of their study, through twenty five years of research, that's something I don't have. I don't have twenty five years of, of research on this. That it's still held true. So. What do you think about this? Income statement affluent I, versus I, I balance sure sheet I sure agree with them. Uh, doctors are way, you know, like the one I just said who was vacationing like a multimillionaire, but they didn't have any money. What they saw was this super high income they have each month. So what's the big deal if I go on this uh, trip? But they don't have any money. So if that doctor suddenly lost their job, they would be destitute because there's nothing backing them up financially. They're spending it as fast as they make it. No place does that show up better than looking at buying a car. When we tend to buy a car in this country, what do we look at? The monthly payment. Because we want to know how does the monthly payment affect our income? I'm making $20,000 a month. I can afford a $1,000 uh, Tesla payment. Okay? That's all we look at. We don't look at how much does the Tesla cost and how much interest will I pay what is the total cost? We never look at that part. We just look at, can I afford the payment? And that is income-oriented, not wealth-oriented. And I think doctors suffer from that a lot. If you would just think about your wealth and realize, I'm way in the hole, you wouldn't be going on $22,000 a week vacations. But if you thought of it as an income, I have a really high income, I make $40,000 a month, then going on a $20,000 a week vacation seems like nothing. I was just talking to a doctor recently who told me that they were making $750,000 a year, but their net worth was zero oh. and they don't have anything in their retirement plan. That makes my because heart there's, hurt. There's not enough money left over each month for them to put it in the retirement plan. And this was the couple that, that had just gone on a $22,000 vacation for a week. And I mentioned to them, well, my wife and I just went to Florida for a month and we spent $5,000 for the month. We had a great time in Florida, went to the Disney stuff, took a little cruise to Cuba. In the meantime, we went to FinCon while we were there. I mean, we spent a, we went down there for a four day conference. We stayed for four weeks and the whole thing cost $5,000. I knew I needed to hang out with you more. <laughs> But these guys paid $22,000 for the, the week. And, and I said, well, where do you stay? And they mentioned that, well, we never, you know, get a hotel for less than $800 to $1,000 a night. Whoa. And so that person is thinking about income only. They make a lot of income every month. And so they go out and spend it. They're not thinking about wealth at all. They're not putting anything away for the future. And they have a net worth of zero. They don't have any more student loans. Those got paid off. But they do have two very expensive car loans, and their car loans exceed $100,000. And so... They're driving Model Xs is what they're driving. <laughs> they're driving some really nice cars. Yeah. Um, but they got nothing saved. So if suddenly something happened, let's say the board came along one day and just told them, you know what, uh, we're taking away your license. You know, something bad like that happens. He would be destitute because he has nothing. He has no net worth. There's no savings to back anything up. There's no retirement plan. There's nothing. The whole reason that they had contacted me was they were realizing that, hey, I'm, I'm in my 50s and I've got nothing. All this money has been slipping through my fingers. Mm. What do I do? Well, stop spending it all. <laughs> that would be a good start. But start thinking in terms of wealth, not income. Yeah, that $22,000 vacation you took, that would have like more than funded your entire 401k at work and yes. almost your whole IRA like in one week of one week spending. But they Oof. just, oof. I mean, that's the opposite end of the latte factor where, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter how much lattes <laughs> that guy cuts out or a lady. I don't know if it was a guy or a robot, like how much they cut out of that budget. That is not going to matter. And here, here's the thing. Like, I've done this hundreds of times now and work through hundreds of situations with, with physicians. Like, and they think it's the latte factor. They think it's, well, if I just cut my Starbucks out and that's five bucks a day, like if I go three times a week, like that's going to solve all the problems. And it's like, no, like that might help assist in adding to that, you know, kickstarting that snowball. 
but it's, you know, it is coming back to mindset. And you know what? You wrote something on contentment and I thought it was fantastic. Probably the best piece you've ever written on. And I'd like to just talk about that a little bit. Why don't you kind of elaborate what I'm, I'm referencing here? Well, that piece kind of came off of a missionary that I talked about, uh, or I talked to once when they came home from the field and they were in Africa. And I kind of was interested in, you know, money and finance and, and what happens to those people in Africa and what do they do? Because my impression was, you know, they live in the dirt hut, they've got absolutely nothing. And, you know, so what are their big problems that they deal with? I kind of know what us, our people deal with here in America. What are their big problems? And the, the answer was, uh, it's materialism. And I thought, well, how could they have a materialism problem if they have no material? <laughs> they've got nothing. I mean, you live in a hut. Yeah, your dirt is nicer than my dirt, <laughs> is what you're almost and he referencing. Said, you know, if you have a dirt floor, you want a wood floor. If you have one cow, you want two cows. If you have a thatch roof, you want a tin roof. It's like whatever they had, they wanted more. And the bottom line was they suffered from the exact same problem that we have here, a lack of contentment. They weren't happy with what they had. They needed more. And we have that, and in, in, that's the whole reason we have debt, is because you're not content with what you have. I've got $5,000 in my account, I need a new car, I can afford a $5,000 car, but you know, I don't like the $5,000 car, I want the $25,000 car. And so what do you do? You got to borrow money because you're not content with what you could do. And I think if we would just learn to practice contentment, and realize that that this 17-year-old motorhome that I have is just fine. There's not really something about it that's telling me I got to get rid of it. Can't I just be content with it? And I struggle with that. Every time I park next to a nice Beaver Contessa, <laughs> I think, look at my old thing here. Is that you know? is that a motorhome? Sorry, I don't know motorhomes. <laughs> that's a very expensive motorhome. Okay. You know, that'll be like three, four, or $500,000 kind of motor. I, I don't know if everyone else is smacking that forehead. Like, how do you not know that? Or if they were like, uh, what is that? So thanks for, for no. clarifying. Yeah. I, I think uh, unless you're a motorhome person, you probably don't know what that is. Okay. But I've been, I've been driving around in a motorhome since, uh, 1994, roughly when we got our first one. And I got a motorhome because when I came to town, uh, my partners felt that if you were here in town, you, you should be working and taking care of your patients. But I wanted to have weekends off. And so I realized if I just get a motorhome, I can go away for the weekend and I'm off. If I stay home, they're going to make me make rounds. So we got a motorhome and we would just go camping. <laughs> so it, it just stayed. It kept, we enjoyed it so much. Uh, we just kept going on and, and, you know, here it is about 25 years later and we're only on our second motorhome. But I'm sure thinking about that new one because I'm starting to lose my contentment with this one. But if we'd learn contentment, debt wouldn't be such a problem. That's not going to help you with your student loans so much. But, you know, a lot of the student loans that people have are because of lack of contentment. It's not just that they borrowed money to get by. While they were a student, they realized, you know, hey, I could just get this student loan here and I can get a new car. And so they borrowed more money or I don't want to have a roommate. So I'm going to borrow more money so I can live alone in my apartment. Decisions like that come again back to contentment. And, and I think that's probably our greatest problem financially in America and probably the whole world is a lack of contentment. Yeah. Advertising doesn't help that at all. Social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, Instagram, these are all horrible <laughs> horrible influences, if you will, on that, or an assault on, on contentment, if you will. But I think, you know, let me tell you a great story about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was this guy goes down. I don't know that this story is true. I heard this story from somebody in finance. We're going to say I don't it's even true. Remember where. I don't remember where this came from, but if this you heard company, it on a podcast, it's true. That's the way it's I, true. Okay. We're going to say this <laughs> is true. So this company developed, uh, went over the border to Mexico, somewhere down into the jungles and, and they put a plant together because the natives there were really cheap to hire because they had really nothing. And so you could get them for nothing. So they built this plant and the first payday came along, they paid everybody. And then the next day, no one showed up to work. And the next day, no one showed up to work. And the next day, no one. And so this was going to be a real problem. So this guy went to the chief and said, Hey, we got a problem here. These guys are supposed to be at work. What, you know, this plant won't run without that. And so 
He said, well, you gave them six months income on payday. So they don't need to work for six more months. They worked on the system they were used to, and you gave them this huge influx of money. He realized he had this huge problem. If he's going to pay them anything, they're never going to come work. And so, but he needs them to work. And so his solution was he sent everybody a Sears catalog. A Sears. And they okay. started looking through the catalog at stuff they could get if they had money, and they all came back to work. Because <laughs> they all wanted that, more. They wanted more. He broke their contentment. They were content. And when you gave them six months income, hey, they went back and enjoyed life again. They weren't used to all those things. You gave them the Sears catalog and they start seeing all these things they don't have. And now they want to go back to work because they need some money because they lost their contentment. Mm -hmm. What a difference contentment can make. Yeah, they basically needed to earn more money to buy the things that they didn't even know that they wanted. They didn't know they wanted. I'm I'm driving an old Ford Expedition, and I saw a new TV ad pop on for the new Expedition, and it had all these cool features mine didn't have. And I'm thinking like, I want that shiny object. I mean, y- yesterday I didn't want a new Ford Expedition, but as soon as I saw that commercial, <laughs> I want that one. That one's way better than mine. Well, I didn't go buy it, but I sure <laughs> it, it was it was working on my contentment. Mm-hmm. It was eating away at you a little by little. And I think in moderation, what I was going to say earlier was, I think in moderation, you can kind of ease up on this. So like in your case, the the RV, now that's a major purchase. But what is it that for a listener taking this away is, what is it that truly makes you happy? What are those really big things? So it, it might be that vacation, okay? And instead of skimping out on it or trying to be super frugal on travel hacking, if you will, If you said, hey, this is our big thing, this is what we want to spend money on, and you pay yourself first, you do all the right things, this is the extra money that you have, spend it on something that truly makes you happy. But that doesn't mean that you can go do that for everything in life. It means you can do it maybe for one or two select things. And again, not we're not talking, God, I don't know how much RVs are, $200,000 for an RV or something like that. You know, we're talking in moderation in that, but... well. I think it was Paula Pant who said, you know, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. Yeah. So if you plan for those things, and that's the whole purpose of having a budget. I mean, everybody thinks that the word budget's a bad thing. Oh, it's the dreaded B word. Oh, it feels like you're restricting me. This budget is restricting you. But I don't believe that. I think the budget is freeing you because what the budget's allowing you to do, it's allowing you to have the things you actually want. If you don't have a budget, Money just slips through your fingers and then you want this thing and you don't have money for it. But if you do have a budget and you say, hey, I want to go on this special vacation, then you can save up for it in your budget and you get that vacation. The budget allows you to have those things you really want. Yeah, I think that is absolutely true with the exception of if you've already pre-spent so much money that you've hit a kind of debt wall, debt limit, whatever it is, and you've (laughs) got to come rein yourself rein yourself back and get things in line. Like you robbed your future self of enjoyment because you spent it a year ago. Like you're going to have to readjust. You're going to have to get things straight. But once you're, uh, you have everything lined up, you've built that really strong financial foundation. Then I actually do agree. It, it really does kind of set you free. It, it helps you prioritize what's important and what's not. And, you know, I, I encourage all my clients, right? Let's write down where you're spending money, everything's on the table, right? Nothing, even if it's a fixed cost, if it brings you enjoyment, we add it back. And everyone's like, oh, well, my my cell phone's a fixed cost. No, your cell phone's a luxury. If you want it, great. And if you don't need it, get rid of it. Now, everyone chooses the cell phone because it brings them happiness, but they're going to give up something else. So I always like to, to look off. at that. Absolutely. You know, strike a balance. I, I just had a conversation a few days ago with someone who we were just talking about this and his notion was he wanted to get out of debt. And so our first thing was to look at what you're spending and we're going to set up a, a, a spending plan that will get you out of debt, get your goal you set the spending plan to meet your goal. His goal was to get out of debt. And he, he came back to me and says, you know, I was looking at the stuff I spent in the last three months and I could not believe how much money I spent on clothing. Hmm. It was outrageous, an outrageous amount on clothing, but he hadn't been paying any attention. He'd just been buying stuff he wanted to buy. 
And he realized that just what he did in clothing in the last three months could make a major impact on his debt payments. But without looking at it, without having a goal, without setting up a budget so that you knew that your money was going where you wanted it to, it was just frittering away on stuff like that. And he, he made a conscious decision. I'm not spending that much money on clothing anymore. That's not going to happen. But he, he wouldn't have realized that that was even happening, except that I made him go back and look at what are you doing? Yeah, he went back, he paid attention, and then he prioritized what made him happiest and clothing did not make the top of the list. So you- No. You asked. <laughs> he Absolutely. was actually pretty mad uh, okay. when he, when hey, he sometimes, I mean, that. you go through all sorts of emotions and, and that's maybe why a lot of people hate the B word is, you know, sometimes a lot of negative emotion comes out. And I tend to look at like, you've got to go back to understand what it was, but I really try to look forward and do cash flow planning. Or if you're a business, you're doing forecasting um, in that sense. But yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of emotion inside this. The, a lot of the things we've talked about today are behavioral in nature. Be, you know, behavioral finance is very real. You're not just going to get this from a calculator. You're not going to get it from a book or reading it. Like you're going to experience it. And the more emotion you put behind money, hopefully positive think, you know, thoughts and emotions, the, I think, and I honestly believe the higher probability of success towards those financial I think goals. If math could get you out of debt, no doctor would be having a debt problem because all the doctors are good at math. Yeah. I mean, you guys <laughs> so are the brightest of the brightest. I mean, it's, it's, you guys. Math is it, not the problem. <laughs> yeah. We I, are I wish, the problem. I wish it was because it would actually make my job even easier, but. That'll be easy. Oh, let's just do this. See right here? Just do that. See, that'll take care of that. Just go, here's a calculator. Talk to you tomorrow. Yeah. You can, you can figure this out. It's not a problem. But well, we, you know, we don't want to do that. It's hard. It, it's, it's really hard and it's a mind, it's a mindset change. So well, I had one guy who said, when we started that episode where you got to go look at what you're doing. And he said, I looked at this, I realized I had two gym memberships. He didn't realize that when he swapped That's gyms, hilarious. he forgot to cancel the old one. Oh and gosh. he had just been automatically paying two gym memberships and only going to one gym. And, and just the exercise of sitting down and look at what you do. Stop turning your, stop being an ostrich here. Don't stick your head in the ground yep. and ignore your finances. Actually look at what they're doing and see if they're doing what you want them to do. What makes you happy? Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't need two gym memberships. That was absolutely wasted money. Uh, just been flying out the window. He might as well have been burning it up in the in the stove, starting his fires with $100 bills because the money was just going out. And, and, and he didn't know it. Yeah. Well, you got to pay attention. You have to. And I, I hope, you know, after 60 whatever episodes we're on, like you guys are paying attention and looking at stuff. If you haven't now and you've been listening to every show and you haven't been paying attention, like there's, there's almost no helping. So hopefully everyone sometimes, listening is paying attention. Sometimes I think we're just speaking to the choir because the guys who are listening to your podcast possibly are not the ones who need it. The guys who need it aren't even thinking about listening to a podcast on money. <laughs> if well, we got to get those guys to listen to if your If you're podcast, listening to this right now, go share it with people <laughs> that you think could benefit from it. That, but, that would be the big thing is get, get those people that aren't listening to it to listen. And so they will change their ways. They're the ones who need it the most. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't know how to get to those guys. Yeah. Hopefully people share it. Well, Dr. Fawcett, it's amazing to have you on, you know, if they haven't heard the show before, please go guys and get, and gals go back, listen to it. It was an awesome show. We talked about the book and debt and, and kind of the, the finance side of this, not more the, the behavioral side like we did today. But for those that don't know you, and the three books you've already written, kind of tell them what you've done and, and uh, where you're going in, in the future. Well, I actually retired from medicine. It's coming up on two years next month. Hey. I'm completely out of, out of the medical field now. Congrats. And uh, thank you. And I decided I needed to do something with my uh, time. I didn't want to spend my retirement twiddle on my thumbs, so I put together this business called Prescription for Financial Success. And I've been trying to teach doctors like you do how to do it better. Uh, I've written three books. All of them have won awards. All of them are on the Amazon bestseller list. They're all called The Doctor's Guide to Starting Your Practice Right. It's how to transition from residency to your attending job. Uh, Doctor's Guide to Eliminating Debt. It's the kind of stuff we've been talking about today. And we covered that on the last podcast with you mm-hmm. extensively. The Doctor's Guide to Smart Career Alternatives and Retirement. That's a guide for people who want to do something different with their life. They're kind of getting bored with their job and, and they need to 
they're either going to quit or change or, or make something happen different. The next book uh, coming out later this year is going to be The Doctor's Guide to Real Estate Investing. I always oh, kept getting people. Yes, I'm, I'm real excited about this one because I kept, it's a question that kept coming up. Uh, I own 64 units that I managed myself as a full-time surgeon. And the question that kept coming up was, how could you possibly do that? How do you have time to manage 64 units as a full-time surgeon? I've got one rental and I can't seem to handle it. And I thought, you know, people need to know, how do you effectively, efficiently manage property as a high-income and busy individual? So that book's coming out soon. I just released my uh, first course. It's uh, for locum tenens, the doctor's guide to uh, locum tenens. And that's to teach you how to do that process. Everything you wanted to know about being a locum tenens doctor or doing it better than you're doing it now, if you are a locum tenens doctor, is in that course. I spent three years at the end of my career in locums, and I learned a lot of lessons. There was no one there to help me in the beginning, and I want to be there to help people later so they don't go through what I did initially. So that course would be a, a big help for them. So that's what's coming up and, and just happened. And then the Doctor's Guide series is going to continue on. I'm probably going to put out about one book a year uh, as time goes by on a, on a different topic that's important to physicians and their finance. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to have links to all that in our show notes at financialresidency.com, which everyone knows you can go to. You know, Dr. Fawcett is in our Facebook community group, Financial Residency Community, which you can go to financialresidency.com slash community to join if you haven't already. If you have any questions about what we talked about here or just want to hit him up in general, uh, you can obviously ping him through the Facebook group. Dr. Or you can go to my site, drcoreysfossett.com. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> you can find me directly. Find him directly. So thank you again for being on the show. It's awesome to have you here. Hey, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. In our journal club, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site wallstreetphysician.com titled Disability Insurance for Female Physicians, The Agony of Defeat. This actually turns out to be a guest post by Larry Keller on that site. And Larry's a good friend and a sponsor of the show. And he's been on the show several times. And Larry specializes in disability insurance for physicians. And I can absolutely attest to his knowledge firsthand. He is amazing. He was on the show last year with the show, Winning Tactics for Finding the Right Insurance Policy. In this article, there's a significant message to female physicians that you really need to be aware of when it comes to insurance, disability insurance specifically. The problem, Larry says, is that female physicians run into that there's just simply paying too much money for their policies. And he compares this to making a purchase later that you find out it actually went on sale. Albeit, I'm not a female physician, my wife is, and I'm the financial planner of the house, but I want to watch out for her and really all of your best interest. So diving into what Larry wrote, he says, and I quote, due to a higher morbidity rate, premium rates for females are substantially higher compared to their male counterparts. The solution is for females to purchase a policy that includes a unisex or gender neutral rate structure and a discount. As an example, and he gives us two great examples, a 30-year-old female EM doc who's a resident in New York State is purchasing a policy from a top carrier with a monthly benefit of $5,000 payable after 90 days to age 65. He included some of the riders so we can understand a little bit, the extended partial disability benefit rider, a 3% cost of living adjustment or COLA, C-O-L-A, a, a $10,000 future insurability option or FIO, and this was a level or fixed monthly non-discounted gender distinct, which is female, premium of $331 a month. However, the same policy with all that same stuff I just said, just with a unisex rate, yields basically a 45% discount because that person would only be paying $182. That is insane. It's huge. Another example that he brought up is a 35-year-old female attending, he chose EM again, in New York State, purchasing a policy with a different top carrier with a monthly benefit of 5000 and again had all the same stuff. And this time, it was the gender distinct or female premium was 688 a month. 
However, that same policy, because this is an attending, not a resident, the same policy with a unisex rate basically was $373 a month or 46% less. So huge difference between a 30-year-old resident and a 35-year-old attending, both EM docs, both females, both live in New York. Massive differences, but also massive differences when you look at the unisex rates. So you're saving money, obviously, by recategorizing kind of that insurance benefit. But what do you do with that extra money? I love that Larry in this article provided an example. He said, and I quote, the non-discounted gender distinct female annual premium would be approximately $7,800 compared to approximately $4,200 for a policy that just had a unisex rate, providing an annual savings of about $3,500. And if that was invested for 30 years at 6%, that'd be a difference of $284,000. Let that sink in for a second. The same policy Everything's identical other than it has a unisex rate and applying that discount over a 30 year period. So if you're 35 now to age 65 would grow or save essentially $284,000. Personally, if you're a female physician, I would reevaluate your policy by an independent third party immediately. If you've got policies, which you absolutely should have disability, you need to go get this reevaluated. It's a huge savings for the exact same coverage. And some of the popular insurance salesmen and women that advertise on all these physician blogs are guilty of this type of stuff. I see it all the time and when working with clients at Physician Wall Services, literally all the time. So not finding these best discounts, whether it's the lack of experience or the lack of trying, I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't really care. I just know that they're compensated by how much they're selling, the premium you ultimately are paying, and $284,000 is a ton of money over 30 years. So do yourself a favor, please go reevaluate your coverage. So now that you know that there's this option, how will you take advantage of it to stop spending more than you have to? Larry, love the post. Thank you for showing us how to do it. Great job. And I'll make sure I link to this post that was posted on wallstreetphysician.com in the show notes. What an awesome episode. I absolutely love having Dr. Fawcett on the show. Hope you guys enjoyed that as well as the Journal Club. So here are the five takeaways I want you to have as you finish out the show. Takeaway number one, it's important to keep in mind that Dr. Fawcett emphasizes the biggest factor was the decision just to actually pay off the debt. If that person just started the snowball, didn't add any extra money to it, just started the snowball, they're debt-free in 10 years and only $178,000 in interest. You cut the interest in half, you cut the time down by about 70%, just by saying, I'm not borrowing any more money, I'm going to pay off what I've got. Takeaway number two, Dr. Fawcett talked about the snowball effect and explains how every debt you have has an end date. All of your debt will eventually go away if you just keep paying it. Every one of those debts is set to be paid off. I mean, the home mortgage is a 30, in 30 years, it's, it's gone. Every debt you have has an end date to it. So if you stop borrowing money, they'll all just go away. And pretty soon you're, you're going to be debt free automatically. Takeaway number three, we talk about whether an ultra frugal lifestyle is sustainable and Dr. Fawcett is not an advocate of the ultra frugal lifestyle and neither am I. And he contends, and I typically agree, it's really all about balance. For you to scrimp and save and go too tight to where you're unhappy, your wife's not happy, the kids aren't happy, uh, you can never do anything, but gosh, I got retired at 35. Takeaway number four. We talk about being debt immune and how this is a real bad place for physicians to be in because it means that you're really never going to get out of debt. I coined a phrase in my book on eliminating debt called debtabetic neuropathy. And that's where we get numb to debt over time. Takeaway number five, Dr. Fawcett ties in the lack of contentment and materialism to buying a car. He uses the example of when you're buying a car, everyone just looks as if they can afford the car payment. 
Nobody looks at the total cost of the car and the actual interest rates that go along with it. This is really an income-oriented thought process, not wealth-oriented. And he explains why it's important to start thinking in terms of wealth and not just income. If you have a dirt floor, you want a wood floor. If you have one cow, you want two cows. If you have a thatched roof, you want a tin roof. It's like whatever they had, they wanted more. And the bottom line was they suffered from the exact same problem that we have here, a lack of contentment. So how about for you? Have you made a decision to pay down your debt? Are you thinking that in terms of income or are you thinking in terms of wealth? How does each mode of thinking impact your life? And I hope that this show has really helped to get you to think about where you stand and ultimately making the decisions that will help you improve the way you approach your debt. For our quick community update, as some of you know, I've asked a few times on the show for anyone interested in free financial health assessments on air, anonymously, of course. I've had several reach out, 10 of you actually, and come to take me up on it. And I'm recording the shows now, and I'm still looking for more. We're looking at testing this out as a Friday show featuring these real case studies of all of you in our community. So if you're interested, email me at ryan at financialresidency.com or reach out to me directly on Facebook. I'd love to feature you and I'm looking honestly for two more people so we can run this test and trial it for a few months. I might not be doing this very long. So if you want that free assessment, now is the time to reach out. So email me ryan at financialresidency.com or reach out to me directly on the Facebook group. I am super pumped that you've decided to take some time out of your day to listen to me yap about finances. It's my passion and I know I can be a little nerdy about it, but this information is for you and I'm just happy to be the messenger. While I'm honored to have you here with me, I can't give you any specific advice on your financial situation through the show. So consult your attorney, your CPA, or shoot, reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, before you go and make any big money decisions. It's just the smart thing to do. Next week, we have a great show planned with special guest Marcus Garrett from the Paychecks and Balances show. I had the privilege of being on their amazing show last year, and I can't wait for you all to hear this show with Marcus. Have a great week. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.